You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're looking at chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. You'll find this on page 929 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading together verses 7 through 12 out of chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. Hear the word of God. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Well, following the riot in Ephesus, Paul intended to go back to Macedonia. And from there, we're told he would sail from Corinth and go to Jerusalem, ultimately. But some fanatical Jews, as we discovered, plotted to kill him, so he had to change his plans. He returned the way he came, retracing his steps through Macedonia, several men accompanying him, probably delegates from various churches, and they were transporting the collection that had been taken up for the poor Jerusalem saints. After a five-day voyage from Philippi, the entourage arrived at Troas. And they spent a week there, and Paul wasted no time in evangelizing the natives. He also encouraged the believers by preaching Christ crucified and risen. And on the Lord's Day, they all came together for corporate worship, as we're doing today. And Luke tells us they were gathered on the first day of the week in verse 7. And of course, this is one of the earliest references to the change in Sabbath observance. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, you remember it was the seventh day, or what we call Saturday. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian Sabbath has been on the first day. Have you ever wondered why why that change? Well, the original Sabbath celebrated the work of creation that was finished on the seventh day. The Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, celebrates the work of new creation begun on the first day of the week. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated what the Bible talks of as the messianic age. Messiah had come. It was the dawn of a new era. And the powers of the age to come are now at work. The eschaton, as theologians call it, has begun, which is why the Bible says you and I are living in the last days, the eschaton. And it says that they gathered to break bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper. And it may have included a fellowship meal, the agape feast, we don't know for sure, but at the bare minimum, it involved what some call communion, the Lord's Supper. And they gathered in the evening because many of those attending were slaves. They were not their own masters. Most likely, they had to serve in the daytime and they couldn't get away. So their Lord's Day gathering was scheduled for a convenient time when all the slaves could be there. And Paul knew he'd be leaving the next day, so he made good use of every minute. And he delivered a farewell sermon, and I think by any standard, it was long. He spoke well into the night, even until midnight, presumably hours. Now, our Puritan forefathers were no strangers to sermons, sometimes one, two hours long. And in some parts of the world today, worship services can last several hours. On this particular occasion, Paul preached a long, extended exposition. And as I said, many were probably slaves and they had worked, labored all day long. But they were hungry for the word of God. They considered this a privilege. How many opportunities would they have, after all, to be instructed by the Apostle Paul? And these folks rejoiced when Paul explained to them the scriptures. And from his own correspondence, we know that Paul was neither eloquent nor impressive. 2 Corinthians 10, this is what he says. He's referring to his opponents, and they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So here's this guy, this presumably humble slight, ineloquent guy proclaiming the riches of salvation. And all the things that he had to say were of the greatest weight and importance. Luke says the oil lamps were lit so that the ambient light was dim and soothing and the torches must have burned up their share of oxygen, which made the air heavy. So it's no surprise that at that late hour, young Eutychus grew sleepy as it may happen here. He was a boy, probably somewhere between 8 and 14 years old, like some of you. And perhaps he sat at the window for fresh air in an attempt to stay awake. The late hour, the stuffy room, the ambient light, the long sermon all conspired against him. And it was an ideal formula for drifting off into a Sabbath day slumber. So overcome with drowsiness, Eutychus fell asleep at the windowsill and suddenly, without warning, he fell three stories to the ground beneath. So serious was the fall, of course, as you can imagine, it killed him. He was taken up dead. Now, some dispute this fact. They think that he was simply unconscious. 
I doubt a physician like Luke would say that he was dead unless he meant it. When it came to medical issues, Luke was a professional and he was not loose with his language. Besides, why would he spend so much time recounting this if Eutychus was simply unconscious? No, Eutychus was dead. He was deader than a doornail. And the worshipers had to have been shocked, to say the least. Talk about putting a damper on worship. Somebody died. It changed joy and gladness into tragedy and sorrow, and immediately the apostles suspended his sermon and attended to the boy. And it says he went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms. He said, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And as he looked up at those weeping bystanders, he was confident of this life. You remember how the prophet Elijah had done the same thing with regard to the widow Zarephath's son? You remember how Elisha did something similar with regard to the Shunammite woman's son? Well, the apostle Paul embraced the boy and did what the prophets had done. God performed through him a miracle in resuscitating the dead Eutychus. It was a miracle. And Luke tells us that Paul resumed his sermon and then conversed until daybreak. And only those present knew the content of his preaching. You and I can only speculate. He was preaching. But whatever he said, this miracle had to have been confirmation, don't you think? There's nothing like raising the dead to underscore a point. It's a great illustration and because nobody would ever forget it. Can you imagine the electricity in the air among those in the upper room? Is it any wonder that Paul spoke into the wee hours of the night, even to daybreak? And Luke sums it all up by saying they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That is a subtle and discreet way of saying that they were greatly comforted. I think one of the things this does is illustrate for us the importance and value of gospel confirmation. The whole purpose, let's just back up a little bit. The whole purpose of an oath is to make the promise more sure, right? We know that. Cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. It encourages those to whom it's made and yet have to wait for its fulfillment. And so you and I take oaths and we swear by the name of God to relieve anxiety and to end all dispute. And God himself knows this and he has condescended to our weakness. So it says when he desired to show more convincingly, well, what can be more convincing than his word? He never lies. But when God wanted to show us more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, it says he guaranteed it with an oath, his word, his oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He wants you to be encouraged. God does. His purpose was formed in his eternal counsel, and it was settled among the three persons of the Trinity. And he revealed his promise in the word, and he confirms it in the sacraments. Visible, tangible oaths. 
Therefore, we who trust in Christ may have strong encouragement. Every time that we eat the bread, every time that we drink the cup, we are reassured of the certainty of God's promise. Have you ever struggled with that? You wake up in the morning and you think, is this really true? Can it be true that I'm going to live forever? Yes, there's the assurance. Absolutely true. And that supper has not ceased for over 2,000 years. Never ceases. The same principle, I think, was at work in Troas by the raising of Eutychus. It was confirmation of the gospel truths that Paul had been preaching. Because God is concerned about our comfort as well as our sanctification. He is concerned about that. And by this miracle, he reaffirmed his presence in the midst of the church. And the impact on that little congregation was great. They were not a little comforted. It's a vivid and striking confirmation that the gospel of Christ is true. God never works a miracle, ever, simply to impress people or to satisfy curiosity. Never does that. There's always a reason for a miracle. It either legitimizes the message or validates the messenger, one or the other. Those are the two reasons for a miracle. And here in Troas, Christ worked through Paul to confirm his office and the gospel. Raising Eutychus validated the apostolic authority and the truth of the good news. So those people worshiping could have said, well, listen, if this man can raise the dead, what he says must be true. You remember Nicodemus? He comes by night. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. How does he know that? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he realized that Jesus had been appointed to and fit for a very special work by God. This Jesus is someone special. And he knew it because of the tremendous miracles that he'd been performing. Now, here comes Nicodemus. He is a reasonable, prudent, well-trained Jewish rabbi, not given to extremism. And he was satisfied that Christ's miracles were no counterfeits. counterfeits. <laughs> They're the real McCoy. The signs and wonders confirmed the identity of Jesus Christ. So Nicodemus was ready to receive Jesus as a teacher come from God. And the situation was no different with Paul. The miracle confirmed him. Just as miracles served as credentials for Christ, they did so for Paul. Hebrews 2, it says, The gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So from the start, the gospel was continued and confirmed by various signs. And those in the apostolic circle performed some remarkable things raising the dead, restoring sight to the blind, healing lame. 
And in that way, God will bore witness to the authority and the truth and the excellency of the gospel. Just like the law was given with signs and wonders, so was the gospel. And his desire, God's desire, is to assure you and me of the veracity of his gospel offer. This is true. Mark 16 says, They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Christ worked miracles through Paul to give us strong encouragement. And note how this miracle symbolized the rich gospel blessing. Did you think about that? Raising Eutychus from the dead is an illustration of the restoration given in the gospel. Reconciliation, restoration are themes associated with the good news. You're reconciled with God. If you died today walking out that door, you could stand before God with confidence if you're a Christian. You're reconciled. And what better way to confirm these truths than by raising the dead? It reverses the curse. It overcomes the king of terrors, the last enemy. And perhaps he was even preaching on being raised from the grave. He could have been. And as that young man rose up, so we by faith rise from spiritual death. And ultimately, the very same bodies that are sitting in the pew right now will be resurrected. That's a glorious promise. But there's another lesson here. I think it's in the text. It's the importance of corporate worship on the Lord's day. I want you to see how these early Christians met together Sunday evening for service. And Luke alludes to it as if it was something very familiar to the early church. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, no explanation. That's it. And they did so, as we noted, in honor of our Savior's resurrection. That's when he inaugurated the Messianic age and the new creation. The meeting place was a humble one. No frills, no bells and whistles. Most likely in the house of a wealthy, large-hearted Christian, and they considered worship one of their greatest privileges. Do I do that? Do I consider worship my greatest privilege? These folks, most of them likely, had already labored through the heat of the day. They could have excused themselves by saying they were exhausted. Who would have argued with them? But nothing was going to keep them from assembling with the brethren. They wanted to enjoy the great privilege of being at the throne of grace. I wonder how many today in our culture absent themselves for reason that would never have kept them from worship. Don't we let all sorts of worldly distractions and recreations interfere with worship? It's a direct violation of God's command, among other things, and few seem to care. I'm told in our catechism that sin is more heinous when it's against the express letter of the law. Sunday is not a day of gloom and bondage, of restrictions and penalties. Sunday is the commemoration and the celebration of our Lord's resurrection. What a privilege. It's the day on which God invites his people to assemble in his presence, to be enriched, 
And there is a very special promise attached to the corporate worship. Matthew 18, Jesus himself tells us, where two or three are gathered in my name, or 200, there I am among them. And there is a sense in which Jesus is present with all people at all times, but in this promise, he means something very different from that general presence. It's a readiness on the part of Christ to minister mercy and grace to us. I can't explain it. It's mystical, it's spiritual, but it's real. Don't you agree that he somehow sweetens our lives and lessens our burdens and strengthens our faith when we gather like this? He communes with us so that we become more and more like him. And on this day, God is pleased as our father to assemble the family for spiritual nourishment. And we believe, I think, that the gospel, familiar as it is, still needs to be enforced by preaching. Authoritative declaration that this gospel is made to you and it's true. An earnest word by a faithful man can carry a great blessing. And those who are conscientious in listening taste the richness of heaven. I hope you've tasted that. Faith comes from hearing, Paul says, and hearing through the word of Christ. And it's that word of Christ proclaimed from the pulpit that the Spirit attends. And faith is a gift from heaven. And the day and the worship and the fellowship. We need the Lord's Day encouragement, don't we? Especially as we see that day drawing near, it's coming. The day is drawing near. And whether that is the day of our death or the day of Christ's return, we need worship. Its primary goal is to ascribe worth to the great name of our God, but secondarily, it serves to sanctify us and to make us more holy. And it happens in our secret devotions, sure, in our private worship, absolutely. But the most formative time in in a Christian's formation into Christ's image, corporate worship. We come away from our weekly work, our daily struggles to find rest in Christ. And here in this place, hopefully, we're reminded that God's Son has finished the work of redemption, that the Father cares for us, and that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And we listen to God speaking to our hearts by and with the scriptures. And because of that, I think you and I need to esteem the privilege of corporate worship on the Lord's day. God made all the days, but this is the one day that he blessed. Our forefathers called it the market day of the soul. Come, buy and eat without cost. The Jews called the Sabbath the desire of days and the queen of days. And I think you and I should consider Sunday as the best day of the whole week. You know how coins used to have this royal stamp on them which made it valuable? Sunday has the royal stamp upon it as the most valuable of all the days. 
The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I think it's a foreshadowing on earth of that glorious rest that we'll enjoy in heaven. That's the second observation. There's one more. I think this highlights the significance and joy of true Christian comfort. Man in his state of sin and unbelief has no spiritual comfort whatsoever. Apart from Jesus, we're told that he has no hope and is without God in the world. Nothing can be truly pleasant or sweet to the unbeliever. The best things in life for him are tainted. Isaiah says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And I could add to that, no true comfort, none. The Lord's curse is on his house, Proverbs 3. All of his earthly joys are truly sorrows. He cannot really enjoy his creature comforts because he lives under the curse. And according to Charles Spurgeon, we would sooner hunger with John than feast with Herod. I have to agree. The unbeliever lives with guilt upon his soul, with corruption in his heart, and a great burden on his conscience. He is alienated from the one who made him, and he is in debt to the one who will judge him. And there are many who try to find comfort in all the wrong places because it can only be found in Jesus. The Christians listening to Paul in Troas had been truly converted, and God ordained that service so that they were not a little comforted. Can there be any doubt about the focus of Paul's sermon that night? As we noted last week, the core and the comfort of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His settled, carefully weighed resolve was to make that the aim of his ministry. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The crucified and risen Christ was the center to which all the lines of his ministry were drawn. He was the focus of all of his labors. He was the strength of his entire ministry. And it's no wonder because by the shedding of his blood, Christ satisfied all the demands of justice. Every demand is satisfied. You don't have to do anything. Just believe Paul must have told them how God's promises were fulfilled in Christ. He must have said that God gives himself to us in glory through Christ. And whatever power or wisdom or mercy God has, they're exercised for us. And he reminded them that believers can always expect God's presence and support. In any difficulty, under any affliction, the Lord is there. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And if this is what Paul was considering in that service, how fitting was it for Eutychus to be raised from the dead? To have a young man die and rise again by the Spirit confirmed the Christian truths. And that's where true spiritual comfort comes from, the Spirit of Christ. Now, I don't think you and I should expect ever for somebody to rise from the dead in our service. 
They might wake up, but they're not going to rise from the dead. But I think we can anticipate the Spirit's work. We should be expectant. When David was troubled, this is to whom he went to seek comfort. When the Amalekites raided Ziklag, as Elder Gilliland read, they kidnapped their wives and children. They took them all. And his 600 men were so bitter that they discussed stoning David to death. (laughs) So he loses his wives. He loses his children. He loses his men. He almost loses his life. Where else could he find comfort? Everything seemed hopeless. Everything was dark. David felt alone. His only solace was his God, and it was the Lord's promise and power that comforted his inward man. And let me just conclude by saying one reason why God grants us such gospel comfort is our ministry to others. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1. That's ministry. That's how we encourage one another one-on-one. God comforts us that we might be comforted and comfort others. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why some of us or most of us are afflicted. We're comforted so that we can comfort others. Some of you are grieving the loss of loved ones. Bereavement is a terrible affliction. And so how you're comforted will help down the road somebody else who needs that comfort. He's training you to be an informal minister. And the Spirit equips us and he works with us through his word to give light and strength and support. And I'll tell you what, our seasoned saints, our seasoned saints are a wealth of comfort for those less traveled. And as they share gospel comfort they found amid trials, that encourages us. It encourages me. I'm becoming a seasoned saint. I don't think I'm quite there yet, hopefully. But it's true. They've been there. They've done that. God has proved himself faithful to them. And they can tell us what to expect, how to persevere, where it's going. Our most seasoned saints, I'll tell you this, This week I visited John Irvin. I hope he doesn't mind me telling you this. I visited him in the hospital. He's having heart problems. I walk into the room, and there's John sitting in his bed. You know John, he smiles. First thing out of his mouth. I'm ready to die. I'm at peace with it. Oh, hi, John. (laughs) He sees a minister, and that's what he says. And you know something? That comforted me. He is on the brink. There is a knife's edge between him and eternity, and he's fine with it. Why? Because he knows Christ and the Spirit lives in him, and he trusts in God's promise. Where would we be without the body of Christ? Where would we be without one another? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you confirm your promise. You don't need to do that, but you've done that because you've condescended to our weakness. And you are a gracious and kind Heavenly Father. We thank you for the comfort of the gospel and pray that everyone here 
would embrace Christ by faith so that they might enjoy not a little comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.